It's time to dig in and discuss the questions on the minds of today's leaders. You are listening to The Kathleen Reeson Show, pushing the boundaries of leadership. This is where we get vulnerable, raw, and authentic about the stuff that really matters. Now, here is your host, Kathleen Reeson. Welcome to The Kathleen Reeson Show, pushing the boundaries of leadership. I'm your host, Kathleen Reeson, and we're here on Inspired Choices Network. And today, I have my friend, Mike Doherty here. Hi, Mike. So you can see Mike. Mike is an expert in venture capital. He also does a lot of business development. He knows financial strategies and planning. He started up businesses. He's got a ton of wealth. And we are so fortunate that today he has coming to play with us. For the next hour, we're going to talk all about his knowledge. And I'm going to dig in and ask questions. So Mike, thank you for being a part of the show. I love to be here. Thank you, Kathleen. So let's get started talking about your background. So tell me, tell us a little bit about what you've been up to. Um, Well, so I grew up in New York. I worked in financial services in Manhattan. Um, Somewhere along the line, that particular company got acquired and and moved me to Chicago. So I spent eight years in the Windy City. um, And most of that those eight years were spent trying to figure out how to get to the West Coast because the miser- the winters are miserable. So my plan and plot was always to get to the West Coast. Um, in uh, 1996, I was working for a financial company and we left that company and three, uh, myself and two other partners decided to launch a venture capital fund. Um, and we were able to do that. We raised $66 million for our first fund. And we were off and we started investing in startups. So there's so much that we could ask just about this, but I want to carry that story forward because you're not on the West Coast now, correct? I'm not. Talk about where you are now and this journey that you're on. Um, I am currently in Barcelona. And in 2011, my daughter was born. So that first year, as you know, as a parent, Um, You sort of reassess your life and reassess what you want to do and where you want to be. Um, We were living in the Bay Area. We were living in San Francisco. So I finally was able to move to the West Coast, as I had hoped. Um, But we were just like, oh, let's try something different. Um, And in that discussion led to, well, let's just go to Europe. So we actually moved to Berlin in 2012 when my daughter was a year um, and decided that we wanted to try that and see what life was like in Europe. Um, We lived in Berlin for six years. Um, Five of it was great. The last year or so, I decided that I wasn't meant to live in Germany. Um, And then on holiday, which is a really good way after a couple of cocktails, we decided we'd move to Barcelona. (laughs) So apparently good food and a little sangria, like, yeah, let's live here. So (laughs) we moved to Barcelona. It's been uh, about three years ago, and we've been living in Barcelona. Um, the weather's great, the food's great, um, and it's just, you know, a, a nice, nice lifestyle. Um, fortunately, with everything being online, I can conduct business and do whatever I need pretty much via Zoom. Um, and here we are, Barcelona. What's so beautiful about that is I hear a lot of entrepreneurs, especially, and even executives say, wouldn't it be great if I could truly work from anywhere? And, and you've really created that lifestyle. So, Tell me, now your goal is to get back to the West Coast, is that correct? Yes, um, we're actually moving back in the spring. So we're going back to San Francisco um, next year, early spring. 
Um, we will have been gone 10 years and my daughter will be going into junior high. So we sort of thought for educational purposes, we wanted to return to the US. Yeah, so I, I acknowledge you for building a lifestyle that is irrelevant to the location. And that's something that a lot of people wanna do. And before we get into really deep discussions on venture capital and, and really creating a company that, that is, could be supportive of that, can you talk about what's the biggest lesson that you've learned in truly being flexible as uh, location independent? Well, I think the, the greatest thing from that is some clients don't like it. And then they're not your clients. They're not the right person for you. Um, I had a client in the Bay Area. And when I left the Bay Area, I hadn't been in this client's office in four years. Um, we had done everything online or via email. Um, and when I left, they're like, oh, you know, we need to find somebody else. And I'm like, but, you know, this has been how we've been operating for four years. Yeah, but what if there's an emergency? And there was a whole bunch of what ifs after that that clearly were indicative that this person, for whatever reason, just felt uncomfortable with the distance. Um, I was not not going to move. So, you know, it wasn't an option. So unfortunately, what's interesting is um, I'm actually coming back to the Bay Area and I've reconnected with that client and, and they're very excited because they're, and they're actually working with me prior to moving back because they've been on Zoom for a couple of years now and realized they can't operate. Um, but you know, some people are okay with it. Some people aren't, some people need the security of, you know, if I call you, you can show up in my office. Um, that's not how I do business. That's not how I want to do business. Um, so, I mean, part of it is maybe having been in business long enough and with enough customers, I was okay with losing a customer, right? Um, which for many startup companies, that's, that's sort of a hard thing when you're very dependent on every customer to build those revenues. Um, I had the luxury of that, like, you know, I'm sorry this doesn't work out for us, but, you know, I can't change what I plan on doing. So therefore, um, you know, it's time to part ways. Gosh, I remember the first time I fired a client <laughs> and it wasn't even, I say firing, but it was just exactly what you're saying. It wasn't the best fit for either of us anymore. That's a, that's a big step. I, I have a client that I've worked with and they actually go through um, their 10, the low, lowest 10% clients every year and sort of assess whether or not they want to continue with that client, whether the overhead makes sense to support that or if they could be supporting a higher ticket client. Um, so they, you know, they go through that process as part of their annual process um, to update their customer base. That's, I, I've heard that before too. And that's one thing to say. It's another thing to execute on. So do they find they're, you're saying they're going through this analysis. Are they doing them the cleaning up of it? Do they actually end up letting go of 10% or are they just going through the analysis of it? Oh, no, 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 no. They, they, they do this with the intent of um, churning 10% of their client base and they may refer them somewhere else. Um, they may make, give the client an option to upsell and, and they become, you know, out of that, but if the client does not want to do it, they'll likely try to find another home for them. So what, is, what results did that create in their business? Um, it's, it's really about having limited resources available to us and making sure that we have the best use of our time with clients that, you know, utilize our time in a way that's uh, profitable and beneficiary to us. For sure. Okay. I see that. That's something that, uh, if I lean back in my advertising agency years too, we'd say 25% every year, you would get the bottom 25%. And so, so 10%, that seems like a much more manageable number when you're 
taking 25% off your business. Obviously that's a huge difference. So tell me, do you apply that philosophy into your business? I don't. <laughs> it, it's an interesting process. I probably wish I should, or I, I, I should more often. Um, no, I mean, the, the challenge is, it's really interesting. I've been doing business a long time, and I'm sure you have this as well. I have clients that, you know, I've known them for 30 years. The client relationship is blurred. So they're sort of friends as well. Um, so it would be kind of hard to kick sort of this friend client to the curb just because they're not doing business. Um, so, you know, I would rather have that, those types of relationships, um, in the long run than worrying about, you know, can I make a little more money here or there? Sure. It's just a different, different business philosophy is what I'm hearing. And I'm in a different position, you know, so, you know, it's, we've been in business long enough that we're not you know, constantly trying to generate new business. Um, we take on new business, but we can be selective. And, and that's obviously a very nice place to be. Sure. Well, let's talk about your venture capital background. And I, I'll give you my understanding of it up front, where I, I know that venture capital exists. I've never utilized it in any of my businesses. And yet I have friends that have really said, this is the difference between me having an idea and me growing a business. That's them saying that's the difference for them of how they launch their businesses. So can you give a background for everybody on what venture capital is? Let's start there. Yeah, so venture capital is an investor buying a part of your business, right? So they become a co-owner in your business and you can negotiate how much their, you know, what their percentage of that is. Um, but typically when we look at venture capital, what we're looking at is a company that's established itself. We say the dogs are eating the dog foods. They're selling to clients. They may be selling locally or they may be selling regionally um, and they have, you know, expansion dreams, right? So you may be doing very well in Illinois, um, you know, and that may be a very reasonable, sizable market. But in order to change your business from, you know, focusing on Illinois to focusing on the United States or going global, right, that's going to require a considerable amount of capital and effort. Or just a different marketing agenda. You need to hire salespeople. So typically what we look at is venture capital is a tool to allow you to expand your business rapidly. Um, you know, you won't be growing it organically. You'll be intentionally marketing and selling um, with those dollars that you've raised so that you can expand fast. So when you say, did you say $66 million was the original fund that you created? It was. Okay, so so ask somebody who created a fund. What do you? How do you even create a fund? Well, we we were working for a company. We were working for a public company that did what we did. So we had the industry knowledge and the industry background. We chose to go out, out on our own. Um, and what we it's not like being any other startup. We had to go raise more money. So we raised sixty six million dollars from investors who knew us, knew of our track record, and. Um, had the confidence that we would be able to be successful. And we raised the first round and then we um, went out and raised additional monies um, later on. So we had about 250 million under management at the time. So, you know, it's about meeting investors, having them, you know, have confidence they'll do the due diligence that we would do uh, like any other investment. Um, and then ultimately they become your business partners. Okay, so, so you've got a fund now. And then, then what? How do you connect with the companies that you want to invest in? Yeah, so we connected, first of all, we looked at certain industries that we were interested in and that we wanted to follow. 
And then we also aligned ourselves with um, more seasoned venture capitalists. So it's very common for um, a larger transaction or a larger investment to be part of a syndication, right? If, if somebody's raising $25 million, not everybody wants to write that size of a check. So what they'll do is they may raise, they may write the check for $5 million, set the terms and um, set the pricing and then invite other investors in. And in the beginning, that's what we did. We participated as that other investor, as the, uh, we, we weren't the lead, we were the, you know, the second or the third investor um, where there was a known lead that we were comfortable with and that um, we, you know, we had confidence in. So you have the funds, you look for these companies. When you say you identified segments that you want to be in, what were the industries that were particularly interesting to you? Well, this was back in 1996. So we were uh, heavily invested in telecom. So it was optical switches and uh, dark cable and fiber. So the internet was expanding and there was a huge demand for um, infrastructure. So we were focused on that infrastructure and telecom. So what industries are on your radar now? Well, it's shifted because first of all, I don't do uh, venture capital investing and the projects that I do now, um, there needs to be more to it than that. Um, you know, one of the things that I did when I moved to Berlin is I got involved with an accelerator and the first accelerator um, program that I worked with with this company was uh, transportation and smart energy. And it was interesting. And then they asked me to come back and work on a second vertical with them. And I worked in digital health and all of a sudden a light went off. It was like, wow, these people are actually doing something that's going to make a difference to people. Um, you know, smart transportation is interesting and, you know, it's going to change cities, but these digital health folks were, you know, changing the life of somebody with diabetes or changing the life um, through, uh, you know, an artificial device that would allow people to have greater mobility or usability um, than they prevalently have. So uh, we currently work in digital health. We also work in uh, the cannabis industry, and then we still support uh, startups in general. Okay, so you you still got industries that are near and dear to your heart. And do you do you find that a lot that venture capital the, we we focus on specific industries? It's not like it's a wide range. It's this VC is in these industries, and this VC fund is in this industry. Is that how it works? Absolutely, because you know one of the things that someone will tell you about VCs is, you know, it's not just their money, it's their expertise, right? Who do they introduce you to? Can they get you your first customer? Can they get you your first distribution? So they're gonna need to be industry focused in order to make those introductions. If it were just about the money, um, anyone could do that. But, you know, if Kleiner can open a door for you that no one else can open a door, then you want Kleiner on as a VC. Uh, got it. That makes sense. So I've got another question on that. Before we get to it, I want to go on a quick break. So you are listening to the Kathleen Reeson Show, Pushing the Boundaries of Leadership here on Inspired Choices Network with my guest, Mike Doherty. We've been talking all about VC venture capital and how we become companies that are attractive. And really just what is this VC? Because I'll tell you what, my knowledge, I'm learning as we speak. So enjoy this quick break on the Kathleen Reeson Show. We'll be back in just a second. Are you enjoying the conversations on The Kathleen Reeson Show? Kathleen speaks both in person and virtually at companies, conferences, and retreats all over the world. 
Learn about booking Kathleen Reeson for your next event at KathleenReeson.com. That's KathleenReeson.com. Are you a subject matter expert? Are you here to share your expertise with an audience waiting to hear from you in only the way you can deliver? Are you ready to have your voice amplified across the airwaves? Inspire Choices Network has a global radio platform streaming to millions of people across the world. Professionally produced and supported by an accomplished team every step of the way, you can broadcast from anywhere in the world knowing your voice matters and we ensure it is delivered with ease and efficiency. Eager to hear your message, the world awaits. Contact us today to become an Inspire Choices Network radio host. Email become a host at inspiredchoicesnetwork.com. Welcome back to the Kathleen Reeson Show, pushing the boundaries of leadership. To participate in the program, join our live studio audience in our chat room at inspiredchoicesnetwork.com. Now, back to the program. Welcome back to the Kathleen Reeson Show, pushing the boundaries of leadership. Today, we've been talking all about venture capital with my guest, Mike Doherty. And we are learning about how we become a company that is would even venture capital would even be a fit and what does it even look like? And so Mike, right before break, we were talking about how the venture capital, the, the person that you want to look for is somebody that's in your industry sector so they can make those connections. So there's, this leads me to believe that there's a lot more, we've got the funds that they bring to you, but it's really about the, the networking, the growth opportunities. Can you tell me more about what a VC offers. So is that more business consulting, business coaching, advisory? Talk to me about the benefits in addition to the money that, that are passed along as part of that relationship. So, yeah, so it's not coaching, it's not consulting. They expect you to know your business and they expect you um, to have the expertise. So they will likely take a board position, so they will be an advisor. Um, but what they, the typical things that a venture capitalist will do for you, if they're a good venture capitalist, is it's the introductions, right? Like I said before the break, can they introduce you to your first customer? Can they introduce you to your distribution partners? Can they introduce you to whoever it is that you need to meet? And the second thing, and part of those introductions is, you know, most venture capital-backed companies will go through numerous rounds of financing. Right? Because if they're successful, they will want to expand even bigger and bigger. So the key role for the venture capitalist is to help you raise the next round of equity. So they will be probably you know, very forefront on making introductions to other investors, um, who they like to work with, so that you're successfully raising the subsequent round. They will participate in that round, but they won't lead it. So they won't be setting the terms. So they'll want to bring someone to the table that they're comfortable with. Got it. Tell me, as a venture capitalist, what do you expect from a return? So the industry expectation is going to be a 10x return on your investment. And anywhere from five to 10 years, sort of, it varies. But it's a 10x. And one of the other things that the industry expects is that you have the potential to be a unicorn, meaning that you have the potential to have a billion-dollar valuation. And the reason why this is necessary is that, you know, the way that the VC model works is, you know, if you have 10 investments, three or four probably aren't going to work out. 
right? Um, one or two might break even, one or two might make a modest return. And then depending on my math, apparently that's two or one left over. Um, that's sort of the big, you know, 10X return or more. And that will cover some of the, you know, deals that either didn't generate a return or lost all the money. So, you know, the potential has to be there. Not every company is going to be a home run and we're well aware of that. But what we have to do is when they are a home run, they need to cover some of the other investments. Sure. So you got, you're looking for companies. What, when you say that you be, they want you to be the unicorn, what, what are some of the indicators that this might be the unicorn? Um, the indicators are how is your growth, right? How are you currently achieving growth? What does the market look like? Is the, the industry in which you are um, building this company, is that industry growing or is that a dying industry, right? So we're going to look for, you know, a growth of 30% within the industry. You know, you wouldn't want to go into an industry that's declining or that's sort of flat because there's just not the growth opportunity. So they're going to look for a growing industry, your ability to generate those types. And then the other things that we're going to look for is, you know, making sure that you have a solution to a pain point that's an unmet need in the marketplace. So, you know, there's this need that no one else has come to figure out yet or, or to solve yet, and you have, and that differentiates you from the competitive landscape. So I'm hearing you when you say first client, I'm hearing that in a couple of different places. And so I want to be clear on this. When you say that, that the investor can help you get to your first client, but then we also want to see growth. Where do you want to see a company at? Do you want to see them already having that client list and you're going to grow from there? Or is it somebody where I say, I don't have any clients yet. I just have this idea and, and we've gotten a little bit of traction. Where is the ideal space? So the, the venture capital community, you know, has a full range of investors. So we have angels and seed stage investors who are willing to come in earlier. You may or may not have a customer at that stage and they're willing to come in early. And we call that typically pre-seed. Um, a professional investor or a VC will come in during the series A. And at that point in time, you probably have a few customers, you know, you have demonstrated that people are willing to buy this. So it really depends on where the investor is on the spectrum as to what their tolerance is and what their expectations are as to how many customers you might have. I'm learning a lot. Thank you so much so far. So think about like Shark Tank, for example. I think Shark Tank really popularized. <laughs> You're going like this. Tell me more. Yeah. You know, it's reality TV. Right. So it has to be interesting. It has to be dramatic. Um, you know, I don't you know, when we do due diligence, we do it over weeks. Right. So we don't make a decision on the spot. Um, so keep in mind, Shark Tank is is reality TV. So it's not really indicative of how the venture capital community works or operates. So you're saying Every program and, and yeah, it's you don't have everybody it's just come and line up and then you hash out. Here's your millions of dollars. What is the average, you talked about 25 million or being the secondary investor. If I was going to go get BC, what's even the frame of revenue or the, the scope that you would go after? So how much money you mean would you raise? Uh, yeah. I mean, are you thinking, so I have a friend who, who raised 20 million on his first round. Is that typical? It, it is in, in today's environment, right? So it used to be, 
um, when we entered it, you know, venture capital was a million or two to start with. And that, you know, quickly raised up by the time we were done, we were at about 5 million. Um, but the deals are bigger, the expansion is bigger. Um, so, you know, I would say most VCs will start somewhere between five and 10 million. Um, and, you know, that's their participation. So I don't know if your friends round was um, led by an uh, one venture capitalist or whether it was a syndication and there were several that got them to the $20 million. It could have been a syndicate. Yeah, yeah. in his case, there were several and I know they just closed the second round. Uh, and so for him, I think it was the second round was even greater. Exactly what you're saying of, to get you to the next round. What I found so interesting is I was learning about his company today or hearing more about it. They haven't, they didn't officially sell their first client until it was five years after they'd been in this process of getting the investors and getting everything ready. Then they said the company officially started. So where in my traditional process of starting companies, I would have said from day one, that the day, first day we start working on it, that's the day the company launches. But what I'm learning is, especially with venture capital, that is, that's not necessarily the case if you bring in angel investors. Have you seen that? Well, the company launches because in order for an investor to come in, they have to be able to buy shares. So there has to be a company. Um, that's different than opening the doors and selling to customers. But the, the entity has to be formed um, at or about the time that they raise money because there has to be a distribution of shares or stock. Sure, um, so LLC, whatever, whatever we're going to classify the company as legally. Right. Probably a C-Corp, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, whatever that looks like. So right. is, that, is that common though? Let's talk about that. Is our typical, are you looking for C-Corps? No, I mean, so I would say that most investors will tell you what they're looking for is they're looking for a team that can execute. And it's really about the individuals that are on the team and what they bring to the table. Um, one of the things that's very common in, in venture capital is to invest in a serial entrepreneur, somebody who's already done this before and, and is doing it again, because that has mitigated some of the risk. They've demonstrated they have this ability. Um, if they're not a serial entrepreneur, then we're looking at the team very closely and you know, trying to get comfortable with the fact that we believe that these are the folks that can execute. Um, you know, we see really interesting ideas all the time, um, but when we look at the team, we're like, we're going to pass. So, you know, and then we've seen okay ideas, but a killer team. And we're like, you know what, this guy's done it before. I'm not sure what he's thinking, but I have the absolute confidence he's going to do it again. And we invest. Um, so I would say that, you know, most venture capitalists, especially in the early stages, what they're looking at is the, uh, the individual running the company, whether or not she or he have the ability to execute. And that's what we really care about. So that that piece, when you say they've done it before, they have the ability to execute, what are some of the metrics you're looking at to prove that that's the case? Um, that they've had an exit. So they've built a company and they've sold it. And selling it means either it was acquired through to by a bigger company or an M&A, or they took the company public because then they sell the company to the public. So what we're looking for is whether or not they have exits in their track record um, for the companies that they've built. Got it. And do you care what the value is on that company at the end of it? Is that relevant? Yeah, I mean, um, what we care about is what was the return to those investors? 
right? So, you know, if they raised $10 million and then they sold the company for $5 million, that's not impressive, right? Sure. They, you know, investors lost money. But if, if they, you know, if they raised 20 million and this company sold at a 500 million valuation, we're pretty impressed. So what we're gonna look for is what was the multiple on the investors that uh, you know, supported this entrepreneur? Sure, awesome. Well, we're gonna go on a quick break here. And when we get back, I've got more questions for you. We are talking all about venture capital today on the Kathleen Recent Show, pushing the boundaries of leadership. We're gonna go on this quick break. And when we get back, there'll be more. I promise you that. So enjoy this quick break. Are you enjoying the conversations on The Kathleen Reeson Show? Kathleen speaks both in person and virtually at companies, conferences, and retreats all over the world. Learn about booking Kathleen Reeson for your next event at KathleenReeson.com. That's KathleenReeson.com. How wonderful would it be to carry your favorite Inspired Choices Network host with you throughout your day? Well, now you can. Inspired Choices Network now has its very own mobile app. Our free app offers live streaming shows, along with thousands of podcasts and TV episodes. Our shows cover a wide variety of topics. Whether you're waking up with us, carrying us through the day, and taking us to bed with you, we're always here for you to enjoy. We're easy to find. Just search for Inspired Choices Network in the Apple App Store or Google Play Store. Welcome back to the Kathleen Reeson Show, pushing the boundaries of leadership. To participate in the program, join our live studio audience in our chat room at inspiredchoicesnetwork.com. Now, back to the program. Welcome back to the Kathleen Reeson Show, pushing the boundaries of leadership. And today we've been talking with my friend and guest, Mike Doherty. He is a venture capitalist who has understood the world of venture capital and understood how to build companies. So we are learning from him. I'm asking a lot of questions because this is something that I'm curious about. So Mike, one of the questions I have for you is when you think back at your history with VC, what's been one of your favorite stories? It could be the unicorn, it could be the flop, but what's the one, what's your favorite story? Um... I think my favorite story is we had uh, a company with a very young entrepreneur and um, other folks had chosen to pass. They didn't want to invest because this person didn't have that serial entrepreneur track record. Um, but we really liked the space that we were in and we really liked the individual. We felt really comfortable with them. Um, so we went ahead and invested. The company actually was very successful. Um, and when that individual started their next company, we were the first person that they asked to invest. So they came back. We didn't even go to them. They came back to us and said, you know, obviously we want you at the table. And, you know, and I think that's a sign of a good relationship when the entrepreneurs want to work with you and you want to work with the entrepreneurs. That's the best possible outcome um, in a venture capital investment. Um, because unfortunately, many of those uh, relationships go south throughout the course of building those businesses. Um, so we were appreciative of the fact that that was a great experience all around um, and we got to do it again. So what's your relationship as far as uh, communication. Are you, are you talking once a week with the, like in this case, with this entrepreneur, once a week, once a month? What What's the frequency look like? 
you know, in the beginning, it's quite often, you know, it could be once a week. Um, you know, it may or may not be an in-person meeting, it may just be a check-in. Um, what's really important and what's really indicative of sort of the management team is how proactive they are, right? If, you know, if as an investor, I have to chase you for reports or I have to chase you for financials, that's not going to make me happy, right? But if, you know, if the financials are due on the 5th and they're sitting on my desk on the 4th and they're accurate and they're realistic, you know, that's just great confidence. And I, I can, you know, I don't need to chase you. I don't need to talk to you as often because you're demonstrating, you know, you're through your deliverables. Hopefully you're demonstrating through the numbers. Um, but I would say in the beginning, in the early stages, probably at least weekly, and then that will taper off to monthly meetings or uh, board meetings or things like that. Okay, got it. And so we've been talking for most of this show about if I were the company that was considering uh, using VC, but I want to shift the conversation and say, if I'm somebody who wants to consider either starting a fund or joining a fund, so I'm an, I want to be the investor. So we talked a little bit about that, your role in that. How would a person get started in this? It's uh, a tough one. <clears throat> you know, the, the way into venture capital is there are two avenues. Um, the first avenue is you are a successful entrepreneur and the venture capitalist then looks to recruit you because they want to bring your expertise in-house as part of their due diligence team, right? You, you know, demonstrated that you are an industry leader in your industry um, and the VC will go out and recruit you. So typically what we'll see is um, entrepreneurs that have had successful companies um, then may move into the venture capital space and become partners at venture capitalists because they have the track record and, and they typically have some notability. If you take a company public, people know you, right? So we know the CEOs of most of the big tech companies. Um, so that's one avenue. The other avenue is, um, you know, if you're working your way up from the bottom, um, I would say that typically what we see is it's an MBA at least um, to get in the door. And, you know, you need to have some sort of track record, um, you know, either an industry sector or some sort of, you know, track record of building a company or being in that environment and understanding that environment. Um, it's very rare. They're, they're not going to take, you know, an applicant out, you know, from, you know, a, a resume that maybe been in banking or something like that. There's going to be need something that sort of stands out um, that warrants joining a venture capital firm. There just aren't that many. So those slots are pretty uh, exclusive. Yeah, let's talk about that. When you say there just aren't that many, what's the field look like? Well, I mean, you know, there's, you know, it's funny because I, I just said there weren't many and then I just popped in my head that I think there's like 9,000 venture capital firms in California alone. So, so like, eh, there is and there isn't, but there's also a difference between, um, you know, a venture capital firm and a top, top tier firm. And, you know, top tier is Oak, Kleiner, um, you know, this company has been around, they probably have billions of dollars under management. Um, they're a brand into them unto themselves. Um, and, you know, yeah, there's 9,000 venture capitalists, but, you know, if you are the top tech company, you're only talking to the top 10 or 20. Maybe. Um, and those are the people that are getting it. You know, all the good deals go to those, those top 10 or 20 as a regular basis. And 
they partner with each other. So, you know, it's a very close network. So what I'm hearing you say is there's a ton of pop. There's a lot of others that are playing the game, but not at a, maybe they're playing a different iteration of the game. Yeah. You know, either they're up and coming and maybe they'll move into that tier or, you know, they're just in a different role. Obviously we have a lot more verticals and a lot more industries so they can be, you know, the giant in a specific industry, but maybe not the giant in the venture capital world. Got it. So you talk, I know you're in the cannabis industry and you talked a little bit about that. Do you see verticals or venture capital that is specific for the cannabis industry? We do, but it's very young. There are definitely investors, but it's very young. Um, it's a very hot space. So there's not a lack of capital. You know, there's lots of money being thrown at the cannabis space right now, um, which isn't always a good thing, right? Because I don't know if a lot of these investors that are not VCs are taking the time to do the due diligence. Um, and there's a lot of uncertainty in, in the cannabis market until we figure out all the federal stuff. So, so what I just heard you say, I think is really important. Let me make sure I heard it clearly, is that there's a lot of money being thrown around, even though they're not necessarily VC. So let's just say me as an investor, I say, okay, I've got, throw a number, I've got a million dollars and I want to put it into the cannabis industry and I'm just going to throw it out there because I hear it's a hot industry. Is that what you're talking about? That there's a lot of money being thrown around, but it's not necessarily VC money. Yeah, I mean, we have a lot of high net worth individuals that have disposable cash or have that kind of money. Um, and the, the problem is they tend to fall in love with an idea. And, you know, one of the things that I did when I came to Europe was we started an education program for these high net worth individuals to sort of hopefully help educate them into developing a portfolio rather than putting that million dollars into that new hot startup, right? Because we know that statistically that company is going to crash and burn. So what we're saying is rather than place all your money in one startup, we think you should develop a portfolio. That's how venture capitalists do it. They have a portfolio. The expectation when we raise a fund is that we're going to invest in 20 or 30 companies because we realize some of them won't be successful. And what we see with the individuals who don't have the sort of expertise is they try to, you know, they put all the money on one bet and then surprisingly, most of them lose. Um, so what we would say is, you know, join a syndication, but, you know, if you're going to take that million dollars, I'd say put it in four or five companies, not one company. So then, so you're talking about your education space when you, when you got to Europe and you created this, how does one, how does one get into that? Is that something that you're still doing? Um, it's not. Actually, I was um, working with an accelerator and it started Bootcamp, which is a, a pretty largely uh, renowned European uh, accelerator. And they had, as an accelerator, they were producing these startups and they were having demo days and they need people to come and see these startups. Um, and one, the one way to fill the audience is to create the audience. So they were hoping to turn high net worth individuals and to turn a certain asset class into this high risk investment because startups are a high risk investment. Um, and we're saying part of your portfolio should be high risk, but you know you need to figure out what your comfort level is and what your risk tolerance is. Um, and then you know on top of that, we want to help reduce some of that risk by taking a portfolio approach, understanding what to look for in due diligence, understanding what to look for in an individual when you are um, you know vetting a, a founder. 
So, you know, we were doing programs and educational programs with Startup Bootcamp called Angels Bootcamp at the time. And we ran that for about three years. Um, and then what happened was um, all of the, right around the same time that we were doing this, um, Techstars and um, a couple others, sort of the big accelerators, started to just give this information away for free because they were looking for the same thing that we were in that they wanted to educate high net worth individuals so that there was more angels to be at the table when these companies were identified. So it sounds like there are these programs that are available out there if somebody's interested. Yeah, I, I think that if you, I think Techstars, um, you know, 500 startups, those types of companies, I'm pretty sure they all have programs like that. Awesome. Tell me, from a portfolio balance mix, actually, as you mentioned, startups are high risk. I have started up seven businesses. I get that. <laughs> and there's a lot of high risk there. But when you look at portfolio balance and you said have some of your funds in startup, where else, what percentage would you put across the board so that you had a healthy balance? Yeah. So, you know, that's financial planning. <laughs> so, <laughs> okay. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, I mean, you, know, you, that's need, on that. you need to be a certified planner to make that. But I mean, it's going to vary because, you know, when you're older, you're going to be less, you know, less risk averse and you're more about conserving your assets than growing them. When you're younger, you're going to be more aggressive, obviously, and you're going to want to be growing your assets. So you should take a higher percentage. Um, but the proper mix, I'm going to leave that as to the financial planners and not get myself in trouble. <laughs> I hear you. Thank you for, for being that and staying in your lane. So one of the questions that I have for you, kind of on that note, though, is when I think about myself and as somebody who started up seven businesses, and when I think, you know, one of them right now, well, two of them have gone really, really well, three of them, not so much, we pulled out of them, sold them or pulled out. And then the other two are still in that startup phase. And when I look at that, it's the exact same formula there. So how do you structure how you run your businesses now, knowing what you know? Um, you know, you're really, it's about sort of taking the time to do your homework, right? Make sure that you understand your market. Make sure, you know, one of the questions that I will typically ask an investor is, you know, what's your cost to acquire versus lifetime value? Do you understand your metrics? Because, and then a lot of them don't. And, and you know, first of all, for me, that means like, yeah, go away. We don't need to continue this conversation until you figure that out because the numbers have to make sense, right? You know, I will invest all day long where we spend a dollar and we make four. Um, but if you're spending 95 cents to make a dollar, that doesn't make any sense. So it's really about understanding the metrics of the business, understanding, and then looking at the market itself, right? Is this a growing market? Is this industry growing? What are some of the expectations? Um, you know, is this you know, product that you have developed, does it solve a real pain point um, and make a difference in their life? Or is it just another, you know, we very often will say, uh, this company is the Google of this or the, um, you know, where they're just sort of a me too company, you know, and we're not terribly excited about that because if you're competing on the same basis, the only thing left to compete on is price, which means your margins are being crunched, which means you're never going to do that well. Um, yeah, I hear so you. So when someone tells me, oh, we are the, you know, we're the Starbucks of cannabis. I'm like, you're not the Starbucks of anything because Starbucks is Starbucks. They have billions of dollars. You know, they have a network. They have an infrastructure. They have all these types of things. You're not that. So, you know, the worst thing you can tell an investor is you are the this of, you know, 
the world because we're going to compare you to the Google that you claim to be like, and I can find all the reasons why you're not Google. Yeah, where did, how long has Starbucks been in business now? Like, I don't even know. I can't remember what their original. Yeah, story I want to say Starbucks started in the seventies. Yeah, I, okay, that's I, what I was totally off my head, so I, I could be <laughs> that, wrong, okay. Well, we're both thinking that's so no verifiable fact, but let's just yeah. say the seventies. So they've been around for a long time, and we compare ourselves to where Starbucks is now, not where Starbucks was when they really hit the. Well, didn't Starbucks almost go bankrupt? Uh, probably. Yeah. I think, I mean, they, I, all, <laughs> they all do at some point. 1971. But that's such an interesting story because if I remember Starbucks correctly, right before they had their, their biggest breakthrough, they were near bankruptcy and it really got them to think we got to do this differently. I, I would compare myself to right after that point versus where Starbucks is now. I want to be the Starbucks right after they realized we may have to go to bankruptcy or we got to shift things. And then they shifted the things. That's the company I want to be. Yeah. I mean, and, and that's, that speaks to, you know, that, I mean, it was Howard Schultz was the, the CEO and founder, but I mean, you know, his expertise to guide through, you know, that tumultuous period and, and come out the other side, because a lot of people don't obviously come out the other side. Um, so, you know, he either had the confidence uh, in investors that were able to continue to support him. Um, when things were looking bleak, um, or he had some magic, you know, management skills. I mean, I don't quite know what the turn, what resulted in the turnaround. Um, but you know, it, it's you know, it clearly speaks volumes to the founder that they managed to navigate those troubled waters. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we have one more break that we're going to go on, and when we get back, I have one of my favorite questions to ask you. So Mike doesn't know what this is, which makes it even better. <laughs> but we're going to go on this quick break. You're listening to the Kathleen Reeson Show, Pushing the Boundaries of Leadership. I'm your host, Kathleen Reeson, here on Inspired Choices Network. And we have been talking with my friend and guest, Mike Doherty. So enjoy this quick break. We'll be back in a second. Are you enjoying the conversations on the Kathleen Reeson Show? Kathleen speaks both in person and virtually at companies, conferences, and retreats all over the world. Learn about booking Kathleen Reeson for your next event at KathleenReeson.com. That's KathleenReeson.com. Welcome back to the Kathleen Reeson Show, pushing the boundaries of leadership. To participate in the program, join our live studio audience in our chat room at InspiredChoicesNetwork.com. Now, back to the program. Welcome back to the Kathleen Reeson Show, Pushing the Boundaries of Leadership. And we've been talking for the last 45 minutes with my friend and guest, Mike Doherty, about venture capital. So Mike, after you've seen a lot of years of business, many different kinds of businesses, my question for you is when do you hold them, meaning keep the businesses and keep growing them, and when do you fold them? So what have you learned over the years where when you're talking with somebody who's not sure, do I lean forward in this business and, and recreate just like what we were just talking about and navigate through change? Or do I walk away? Do I sell? Do I close? What's that lesson when you're in that point that you could give to the, to the world today? I can tell you from experience that every time I've had that thought and the conclusion that I've drawn, I was wrong. Um, I've seen companies where in my head, there was no way that they were going to succeed. Um, but there was a determined entrepreneur that was just going to get it done. And that sort of, you know, I'm going to make it, I'm going to do it, um, carried them through. And then I've seen some really smart, great people 
launch companies that had, you know, on paper, all of the expertise that they should have and failed miserably. So, you know, it kind of comes back to that idea of it's the players at the table, it's the team. And it's just sort of, you know, some folks will just get it done. And again, I've been wrong. You know, I've, you know, routinely thought like, oh, this person should just give up, you know. And, you know, we've seen a lot of people, you know, who didn't do so well and, and, you know, and we feel bad and we, you know, like we don't want them to keep moving forward. But how do you tell a person that, you know, your dream is done? I'm not the one who's going to tell them that. I mean, I give you any more money, but I'm not going to tell you, you know, to pull your plug. That's something that the entrepreneur has to figure out. Sure. What's, so if you think about your career as a whole, what's the biggest lesson that you've learned? I mean, it's kind of the same thing is, um, you know, you'd be surprised at, you know, people's ability to get things done. It's the ones that you don't think are going to be able to do it that turn out to be the stars. And the ones that have everything going for them on paper, the MBA and all the expertise, um, you know, they don't have the drive, they don't have the gumption, um, and they're not usually as successful. Yeah, it seems like there's that fire. You got to have it as an entrepreneur, an executive, no matter what. If you're in an upper management level rank, you got to have that fire in you. And I don't know about you, but when I see that fire go dim, I was like, that's the point. It doesn't matter what's going on in the business. It's that if I don't have that fire in me to continue forward anymore, then this is not the right fit. It's not aligned and I get to be out. But if I'm fired up and I still think there's potential, then no matter what it looks like, I can solve it. And that, that's, that's the piece I've learned over the years. So I'm interested for you. Do you yeah, see I mean that, that fire? One of the things that, you know, we, because we do pitch coaching, we help people. And one of the things is tell us your story. Why are you doing this? Right. And it, especially like in digital health, we have like people that are doing things because their dad has suffered with diabetes his entire life. Right. This isn't about making million dollars. This isn't about, you know, building a big company. This is about helping his dad because he's seen this person suffer. He's seen what they've gone through. And they have a personal connection to the outcome, right? So again, we always ask, tell us your story. Why are you doing this? You know, and if their story is kind of vague or it's just like, yeah, I want to build the next big company and do this and that, I'm kind of underimpressed. But when they tell me, you know, when they have a direct connection to what they're doing and they have a vested interest in the outcome beyond financial, um, they will do, they will unturn whatever it takes and move mountains to get it done. Yeah, thank you for sharing that and really, really connecting with what is important to us. One of the things that I want to want to share with you all is how Mike and I met because it is a little bit unique in today's environment. And uh, I was on LinkedIn, and I don't know about you guys, but I get a lot of hit, lot of people on LinkedIn that that aren't in it to connect. They're in it to sell. They're in it to be about them. And Mike came up on my people you should get to know on LinkedIn. And I looked at Mike's background and I thought, well, this is really cool. I want to get to know this guy. And I sent Mike a note to say, hey, you came up on my LinkedIn as somebody should get to know. Would you be open to connecting? And Mike said, yes. And so Mike, can you share your experience? And do you have a similar experience to me on LinkedIn where it's kind of a sales wild, wild west? 
Yeah, you know, my approach to LinkedIn is I'll give anyone the, business, uh, the benefit of the doubt until they prove me wrong, right? So I'm pretty open to receiving, um, you know, invites and stuff like that. And if after receiving your invite, the next thing you do is sell me, I'm done. You know what I mean? Um, but, you know, I, I think LinkedIn's a powerful tool. I think it's a great opportunity. I do believe in networking. I think networking is terribly important in growing businesses. So I'm always open to meeting new people and talking with new people. Um, and as long as you don't prove me wrong, we're going to have a great time together. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Because that's one of the things that I have the, the same approach of we really want to connect and network. And there's a lot of great people in the world. And if I'm interested in what you're up to, I will support you as much as I can to get there. But not if, it, not if we, we end up being that sleazy about it. And so that's, that's a, a nice tip of really being about the other person and just connecting and networking. There's, there's a, it's a valuable tool for that. Yeah, I, I'm very open, but I have a really low threshold for bullshit. So. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So we have just just two minutes left. So Mike, if people want to talk with you, do you have any, what's the best way for people to get a hold of you? Like you did, Kathleen, reach out to me on LinkedIn. That's probably the best place to get a hold of me and I do respond. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here today, Mike. I really appreciate your time and you just sharing your wisdom with us today. Thank you for having me, Kathleen. It was a pleasure. I can't believe it went by so fast. Yes, absolutely. Well, so thank you, audience, for being here today. We go live every single Monday. And next Monday, we are having a show that's actually about embracing imposter syndrome, syndrome embracing imposter syndrome. It's one of those things, if you've, you've never heard of imposter syndrome, you've probably experienced it because 70% of executives, entrepreneurs, it's even higher, we experience imposter syndrome, which means we're constantly applying for the job that we have. So even though we have this role, we wonder, are we enough for it? Can we move through this? So that's what we're going to talk about. What actually this is, how do we embrace it? And what are things that we can do that make this easier for us so that we do not let that hold us back? So next Monday, catch us live for Embracing Imposter Syndrome. And you guys, we have such an incredible lineup of guests and and shows during the month of August and September. So make sure that you tune in because we are all about being the advisor to the executive. So bringing guests like Mike on here to talk. So enjoy today. Happy Monday. Enjoy what you get to create. Thank you so much for being a part of the show. You have listened to the Kathleen Reeson show, Pushing the Boundaries of Leadership. We will see you next Monday. Bye. Thank you for listening to The Kathleen Reeson Show, pushing the boundaries of leadership. Kathleen Reeson will return next Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, 10 a.m. Central, 9 a.m. Mountain, and 8 a.m. Pacific on InspiredChoicesNetwork.com. Have a great week.